Hey families, your sister Jocelyn here, and welcome to another episode of Faith on the Journey. If this is your first time tuning in, we welcome you. We are so glad that you are here and want you to know that we're committed to helping you strengthen your faith, heal your heart, and discover a sense of community. And we do so through a variety of ways by connecting you with a team of Christian counselors and offering trauma healing trainings for churches across the country. You can learn about these resources and so much more by visiting our website at faithonthejourney.org. Again, that is faithonthejourney.org. Now today I'm welcoming to the show a woman who is on mission for the kingdom of God to help others who've experienced human trafficking. Amanda Blackwood is an artist and author who has written over a dozen books and uses her platform to raise awareness about human trafficking. She's also a public speaker and a trauma recovery mentor, sharing her experience on international stages and through her podcast. And we are blessed to have her here with us today. Thank you so much, Amanda, for accepting my invitation. And thank you so much for having me. I'm really honored to be here. I'm very blessed. Yeah, yeah. Well, Amanda, I had to invite you because you have an amazing story. And so I would like to start off with you just sharing that with our audience, and then we'll go from there. So you did touch on that I'm a survivor of human trafficking. What a lot of people don't realize is that human trafficking uh, survivors typically survive early childhood abuse also. I'm no stranger to that. As far as I can remember, my first experience being molested happened when I was only four. It happened again throughout my teen years, 12, 13, 15, 16. I was raped at 17 by somebody I thought was my best friend. One of the first questions I usually get is how old was I when I was trafficked? And that's because we have this preconceived notion here in the US that it only happens to underage children. In reality, people under the age of 18 only make up one quarter of all the human trafficking victims worldwide. So the first time I was trafficked, I was 18 years old. I was dating a man that was more than twice my age. And this man, for lack of a better term, loaned me out to a friend of his for a birthday weekend in Las Vegas. And during that weekend, my identification was taken away from me. I had no control over the room that I was staying in. I wasn't able to leave the room because I didn't have a key. I was only allowed to order room service once a day. And the hotel staff had very specific instructions to leave it outside of the room and walk away so that they wouldn't be able to ask questions. I was in that situation for 52 hours before I was able to get back to where I had been living and I gathered my things and I left. I would rather be homeless than have to subject myself to that again. The second time I was trafficked, I had found my way down to Florida and was supposed to be staying with my grandmother when she and her husband, my dad's stepfather, decided that they changed their mind last minute and would not be taking me in and taking care of me and helping me while I got knee surgery. Um, instead, I was left at the Daytona, Daytona Beach bus station at 1030 at night with $5 in my pocket. I didn't know, learn for many years that the reason they did this was because my own family reached out to them and told them that if they took me in, that my parents would never speak to them again. So a young couple took me in and said that they would give me a place to stay until I could find myself back on my feet. But what they really meant was they were going to give me a place to stay until they could find the highest bidder. Apparently, somebody paid enough money for me that I was locked up in a small room for 23 and a half hours with no food, no water, no bathroom facilities. And thankfully, there was a Richard Dean Anderson TV show 
back in the 80s and 90s called MacGyver. A man could fix anything with a paperclip and a rubber band. I loved the show so much that in the middle of this crisis, being locked in this room, I was able to calm myself down enough to think clearly, what would MacGyver do? I used to have a t-shirt that had that saying across the front of it. Loved that t-shirt because it saved my life. I won't get into too many details of how I got out of there. I did write a book on that one called Detailed Pieces of a Shattered Dream. I did manage to get out, obviously. From there, I floated around the country again, went to Ohio, then to Arkansas, eventually found my way out to California. In California, my plan was I was going to live in Los Angeles and I was going to become the world's best assistant to somebody important. That was my objective. It was a high school dropout with no college education. It really was, I thought, the best thing that I could ever possibly achieve in this life. Instead, I floated around from one waitress job to another and was on Alias and Will and Grace. I modeled for Harley Davidson. I'd done a lot of really cool things when I was living in LA. It was so much fun. Um, eventually, I ended up finding my way into the world of internet dating in 2004. I met a man who lived overseas. He was in Scotland. So of course we knew right off the bat that we weren't going to get into any kind of like a real relationship, right? Instead, we were just going to be long distance pen pals. But over a period of seven years, he came to visit me and I went to go and visit him. We decided that we had fallen in love and we were going to get married. It took him seven years to get me there. And it took him seven days to start trafficking me. I was 31 years old. Wow. Like for those who can't see my face right now, I'm sitting here like, ah, oh, for, for a number of reasons. Uh, first, the fact that it was a number of different episodes of trafficking from different angles and all the time, especially that last one, seven years of thinking, you know, someone, how heartbreaking to realize you were in a similar situation again. Tell me kind of where was your mental space after that horrible experience. So Scotland became this absolute living nightmare for me. Now, at first I was all excited. I was going to move over there. I had a fiance visa. I was going to go and marry this man and live in the land of kings and castles. And it was going to be my happily ever after. That's what every little girl dreams of, especially when you grow up in a trauma filled environment, you want somebody to rescue you. And that was my rescue. So I get all the way over to Scotland and I land in January and the snowflakes hitting the plane are as big as the palm of my hand. It's freezing there. Within the first week is when he started trafficking me. Within two weeks, I had spent whatever money that I had brought with me, which wasn't much, on trying to get an emergency flight home. And I had to wait five days for that flight because I couldn't afford the most expensive one. I only had about $2,000. And during my wait for that flight, during that third week, I ended up with a kidney infection so severe because of the abuse that I was in the hospital the day the flight took off and it was a non-refundable ticket. I was completely devastated. I started to lose hope. I had no idea what I was gonna do. How do you get out of something like that? I trusted this guy. Yeah, oh gosh. And so what happened next? How did you escape? Well, one of my attempts at escape was actually um, not to escape with my life. My plan was I was going to commit suicide. And at the time I was a smoker and I went down to a local church that had been built in the 1600s. It was the coolest old building. 
And I sat down in the churchyard, leaned my back, my spine up against a headstone with the date of 1776 on it. The name had worn off long ago. 1776 is American independence. I took that as a sign and I sat there and that day, that was my only friend, was whoever was underneath that grave from 200 years ago and had lost their name. They had lost their identity every bit as much as I had. And I prayed that somebody would come and find me there and nobody came. And eventually I got tired of sitting there on the wet grass and I got up and I sat on the uh, front steps of the church. I tried the door handle first. The doors were locked. The place was closed. And I sat on the front of the, the church and watched the people walk by and watched people driving past and prayed that one of them, any of them, would come and find me and ask me what was wrong and nobody came. Eventually, I made my way down to the train station where my plan was that I was going to wait for the next train to come in and I was going to commit suicide by train. I had done studies and research to the point where I knew this was going to be one of the um, least painful ways to go out. And while I was there, I brought and took out that one last cigarette that I brought with me and I lit it and a man walked out on the platform and he asked me for a light. So I gave him my book of matches and I told him, you can keep them. I won't be needing them anymore. I desperately wanted that man to take that moment to ask me why I wouldn't be needing them anymore. And he didn't ask. So I didn't feel it was my place to tell him. I wasn't going to make him care. I wasn't going to suddenly give him this, this massive insight into my life. And even if I did tell him, what if he knew this man in this same small town that had been trafficking me, this police officer that had done this to me? I can't trust anybody. You said the man who trafficked you was a police officer? Yes, he was. Oh. So this man lit his cigarette and he handed me back the matches. And while we were there, a little boy, probably about four years old, came out onto the platform and he took this man's hand and he looked up at his daddy and then he looked at me. And the eyes of this child were not the eyes of a child. It was the first time a human being had really seen me in months. But God sees. He finally sent somebody to see me. That's what I had been praying for. Not for somebody to ask me if I was okay, but for somebody to see me because I was invisible. Nobody saw me. Nobody knew what I was going through. And this little four-year-old boy knew. And I knew in that moment that I could not traumatize this child the way that I was traumatized at four years old. I couldn't destroy his life the way somebody else had tried so hard to destroy mine. And it took me about 20 seconds to realize that I wasn't running toward the train. I was running toward my prison. I was heading back. And on the way, I was screaming and shouting like a madman, thanking God for a miracle that I hadn't yet received because I knew that if he was keeping me alive, there had to be a reason. And this is not the end of my story. This is not how I go out. That's right. So he gave me some really great ideas. <laughs> Within the next month, I started to convince my captor, my trafficker, that I had developed such a deep trauma bond. It used to be known as Stockholm Syndrome, that I would do anything for him and give up anything for him. And toward the end of my visa, I told him, we didn't get married on the day that we... We told the UK that we were going to get married. And if I stay beyond my visa, if they find out, I could get kicked out of the country and never allowed back because of UK law. 
if anybody finds out, you could lose your job as a police officer. And wouldn't that be terrible? And we don't want that to happen. Mm-hmm. But if you send me back, I can go back to Los Angeles and stay with friends for the next six months and then get another visa and come back. Mm-hmm. And within two hours, he bought a round trip flight. While I was living there in Scotland, I missed the American accent so much that I watched every episode of Law and Order Special Victims Unit and Air Crash Investigations. <laughs> Terrified of flying at that point. <laughs> uh-huh. Mm-hmm. But I was more scared of staying. And that plane became such a beacon of hope to me that when I left there, I was so happy and excited to be on that plane that two years later, I became a flight attendant. Oh, wow. (laughs) I did that for two years, three months, 28 days. Not that I was counting, but what an adventure that was. Yeah, yeah. So let me ask, how long was that period in Scotland? It was a period of 152 days. Mm Hmm. Yeah, I can tell that numbers are significant to you. From the date on the tombstone to how many days you were in Scotland to how long you were a flight attendant. Is there a reason behind that? Um, It might be a bit of a subconscious reason. I've never really given it too much thought, but my mother was a postal carrier when I was a kid growing up and she had this head for numbers too. She taught me how to count money back when I was really young. And it's one of my fondest memories of us actually having interactions together. We don't have any kind of relationship now, but she was really good at that. We would say a number, a four digit number, and she would rattle off the name and the rest of the home address, whichever one it was on her route that that corresponded with that four digit number. She was amazing at this. But I think more than anything, the numbers of these days of how long I spent doing these things are significant because 152 days of living through that nightmare pales in comparison to two years, three months, 28 days of nonstop adventure and rediscovering a love of life. Mm, yes, yes. And let's let's talk about that because when you got back on American soil, praise God, I'm free. What was your process of, you know, recovering from the trauma that you experienced to then taking an adventure? Well, for a long time, that process consisted of nothing but hiding. Now, when you go through a trauma, a lot of times it's really difficult to face it. And you do have to face it to be able to move beyond it and to heal from it. But I wasn't ready to do that. But he just kept attacking me. He came over and was looking for me. Um, I saw him banging on the neighbor's door one day, violently banging on the door looking for me. He had my address off by one number. He was taking the the photos and videos that he took of me while I was being molested and raped, putting them into emails and on social media sharing websites and sending this stuff to people that I was working for, friends of mine, acquaintances, anybody that he could find that was connected to me. He was sharing this information with them. And so I, I kept on shutting down and it was including social media information on how to contact me in this stuff. sharing this publicly. So I was shutting down all my social media and going into hiding and using cartoon images to instead of my face for, you know, my profile images, whatever I could to try and go into hiding. In 2019, I found out that he had taken all of these photos and videos and he put them up on a pornography website and made me famous to the point where I was recognized in a grocery store. 
not for being on alias or will and grace or modeling for harley davidson but for being on a pornography website against my will oh my gosh Hey family, I needed to interrupt today's broadcast for a very important public service announcement to all my women out there. If you are a sister who you know God is calling you to start your own ministry, maybe you have the desire to become a Christian life coach. Maybe you want to work in the ministry of helping those who are grieving from a divorce or major loss. Maybe you have the gift of communication and want to travel across the world sharing a message that God has given you. Whatever that calling is, I want to help you reach it. That's why I started Women in the Ministry, a community designed for women who are called to non-traditional ministries outside of the walls of the church, but they need a community. They need a little support getting their ministry off the ground. If that's you, I encourage you to visit womeninthemistry.com for more information about some upcoming free events, tools, and resources to help you not only launch your ministry, but build a powerful ministry for the kingdom. Again, that's womeninthemistry.com. Check that out today. Now let's get back to the show. When that happened, I know what emotions I probably would feel in that moment. Honestly, I don't know. It, it, I feel like all the emotions, but tell me kind of what took place in your mind and how you worked through it. I was completely devastated. I thought I had left all of that garbage behind me. I was ready to move on with my life. I had moved a thousand miles to get away from the state where he had dragged my name through the mud. I was living in Colorado instead of California. I had started over and now I was looking at it going, I'm going to have to start over again. Where am I going to go? How do I run away from this? And I said, I can't run. He's just going to keep finding me. I can't keep running. So I reached out to a, a local anti-trafficking organization in absolute desperation and despair. It was the first things I was feeling. They paired me up with a pro bono legal group to be able to go out and start reaching out to these pornography websites and having this stuff pulled down. And while they were attacking it, every time they pulled one down, two more would go up. I didn't know how I was going to emotionally survive this. So the anti-trafficking group also paired me up with a therapist that I didn't have to pay for, which was huge to me because I was still very uneducated and still just trying to scrape by. And I traumatized the poor therapist so much, I'm pretty sure she left the industry completely. Uh, but then they found me another one. <laughs> Hopefully she found somebody too. <laughs> yeah, I think she needed therapy as much as I did after that. <laughs> mm -hmm. So then they found me another therapist and this other lady had already worked with several other survivors of human trafficking. And I told her right off the bat, do not come at me with prescriptions. I don't want to take pills because that's a band-aid. I need a fix, not a band-aid. Number two, don't beat around the bush. Don't walk on eggshells. Give it to me straight. I don't care if it's a gut punch. It's the only way I'm going to get through this because I've been facing this for years and I'm tired of other people walking on eggshells around me if they found out that I went through something traumatic. Don't do it. And she said, that's good. I don't walk on eggshells. I'm not going to coddle you. And she didn't. For the next year and a half, we went through this process. We did EMDR and tapping and talk therapy. We went through all of this stuff and she helped me to get over these speed bumps that I had been struggling with basically my entire life and connecting certain emotions with different events when I was a kid and unwinding all of this damage that was done. It's like untangling a yo-yo string. It was a beautiful process. Towards the end of this, it was November of 2020 when she said, I don't know that there's much more I can do to help you. We'll, we'll keep meeting once a month and, you know, we'll see how you're doing. But 
you've done really well. What are you going to do next? I said, you know, Amy, I think I'm going to write my book. And she said, oh, I thought you've already written a book. I said, well, yeah, I've written several, but I need to write my book. God had been telling me for years, write your story. And I kept on putting it off going, oh, I've got this other one I'm going to write first. I've got this one I'm going to do next. I've got this one as part of a series. Write your book, he kept telling me. And finally, in December of 2020, I started and finished the entire 350 page book. And when she checked in with me a month later, she was blown away and she says, well, now what are you going to do? You're already done with it. I said, you know, I don't know. <laughs> she said, why don't you try art? I said, I don't, you know, I used to draw, I got burned out on it. You know, try painting. I, I don't know how to paint. I've done finger painting. I was coming up with whatever excuse I could. I've done finger painting and water paints and I'm terrible at them. I don't know how to paint. She's like, well, it's not about being good at it. It's about finding a way to express yourself creatively. I'm going to have somebody bring over some canvases and paint brushes and acrylic paints. And I want you to just paint. It doesn't matter what you're painting, draw, paint, doesn't matter. Just put something on the canvas because I want to see it next time I check in with you. I love your therapist. Oh my gosh. <laughs> she was she the was... real deal. She kept you accountable. Like, oh, you gonna, you gonna do this homework. Oh yeah, absolutely. And she knew me well enough to know that I was driven. If, if, if I'm given this task, this assignment, and I say, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. So she would badger me until I said I was going to do it. Within three months, the organization that had paired me with her in the first place purchased one of my paintings and made prints of it and sold the prints to be able to help afford therapy services for other survivors of trafficking. I love it. Within five months, I had painted the painting here that's behind me. It's called Carry Your Own Baggage because we all have to carry our own baggage through life before we find a safe place to set it down. This has been since used as a book cover on a historical fiction book of mine. But the original, this is a print. The original is hanging in a home for human trafficking survivors in Chicago, Illinois, with the essay about carrying your own baggage. And because of that painting being sold to them and put on display the same month my autobiography came out on my 10-year anniversary of freedom from human trafficking, that 10-year anniversary was June 19th of 2021, the Chicago Tribune wrote an article about me. And I'm very proud of my Chicago Tribune article talking about having overcome all of this stuff and learning how to fight back. And the next month was when I met my husband, who's the audio engineer of our church. Ah, come with it. Yes. Just, all right, y'all. Whoever's listening, I got to do a praise break with my sister right here. Because all these beautiful things from the painting and the, and the book, and I just have so many questions to ask you about all those things, but we don't have enough time. But just seeing how God just ordered your steps is beautiful. When I finally learned how to listen to him, he had everything I needed. He had every step planned out to me. He'd been telling me for years, write your book, write your book, write your book. And I kept putting it off. When I wrote the book, when the book came out, he had all of these beautiful gifts waiting for me. I just needed to follow him. Yes, yes. And I think for our listeners, someone needed to hear that because God does have beautiful things waiting for us. And he, he wants to help us to heal. 
and to move from a place of always carrying our baggage to finding a safe place to lay it, as you mentioned. And so for you, now you you met your husband, you got married, and what are you doing now as an author and now a speaker? Can you talk a little bit more about that? Absolutely. Uh, book number 13 was just published on June 1st. Uh, all of this since 2018. Um, the most recent book is my cookbook called Surviving in the Kitchen, Recipes for Life, Love, and a Full Stomach. <laughs> Love this. And it's just another form of creativity, like the drawing and the, the writing, all this stuff. It gives us a sense of control over at least one aspect of our lives. Yeah, As trauma survivors, we need that sense of control. And being able to measure flour sometimes gives you the sense that you need. A trauma recovery mentor, I'm helping other survivors of trauma to be able to move beyond uh, the constant trauma reactions that they're experiencing. I have a couple of different podcasts where I do the same thing. Um, talk about and break down what the trauma reactions are. And when I'm doing public speaking, I work with an organization called Shamrock Way. It was founded by an MMA fighter by the name of Frank Shamrock. He lives out in Carlsbad, California. I met him originally when I was a flight attendant. He was having a very bad day and I was the first person that day who had been kind to him, he said. So you never know who you're being nice to. We struck up a friendship. This was years ago. Now I am a public speaker for his events and we are planning later on this year a trip to Mexico to build homes for some homeless people. We are doing a From Battered to Brave event, uh, teaching self-defense to women in women's shelters. And I'm going to be a keynote speaker at both of these events. Fantastic. And I just want to point this out that for someone who is a high school graduate, or did you say dropout? Did you drop out of high school? A high school dropout with a GED. And some might say, oh, well, you can't be an author. You can't be a keynote speaker. You can't travel around the world. Come on now. Like, I just needed to point this out. <laughs> God didn't tell me I couldn't do those things, did he? That's right. And God didn't tell anyone who's listening that you can't do what God has given you a vision to do. And in fact, some things you haven't even had the vision revealed to you yet. You don't even know how far God wants to take you. But it's just taking those small steps, understanding that those little breadcrumbs that God lays before you to move you forward is leading you to something great. And so you are a living testimony of that. And I would just love for you to share with the listeners if there was some words that you can offer the younger Amanda from like 20 years ago, uh, maybe even 30 years ago, what words of encouragement or advice would you give her? If I met the me from 30 years ago, the first thing I would do is give me the massive hug that I so desperately needed at that age and to tell me, I love you and you are enough and you are worthy of love. Um, I think about that occasionally. There was a lot of hardship at such a young age, but definitely also in the 1800s, we had this very famous philosopher. His name was Frederick Nietzsche. And Frederick Nietzsche coined the phrase, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Years later, he died in an insane asylum. We can definitely let go of what it is that he told us because it's not true. The people who abuse us and the things that we go through, that's not what makes us strong. God makes us strong. We have that strength within us already to get through everything. We do not need to ever put ourselves and our hope and our 
needs back in the hands of the people who took it away from us in the first place. You don't need an apology from that person who hurt you. You need to move on from the person who hurt you. If that's yourself, you need to move on from who you were and move into who you need to be. Let go of that anger because in the end, that's what forgiveness is. And God tells us to forgive. Forgive us our trespassers. Mm, Yeah, release them. Release that baggage and the hold that they might be having over your mind. That's huge. And I so appreciate what you shared in terms of the quote, the the many platitudes and old sayings that we might have uh, been raised to believe around strength and what might be considered even toxic positivity. In some cases, these sayings, we got to let that stuff go. It does not serve us well. Absolutely. And stop spreading the hurt people, hurt people thing. None of us get out of this life alone. We are all going to be hurt at some point, and we don't all use it as an excuse to hurt somebody else. Unhealed people hurt people. Mm, that's good. Dropping some knowledge on us today. And I, I know there's so much more to, that we could talk about, but because of time, I want to have you let our listeners know where can they find out more information about you. It's really easy to just head on over to growthfromdarkness.com. You'll see that at the bottom of the screen there if you're watching on the video. Growthfromdarkness.com. You'll find information on my speaking events, um, on the books that I've written, the workbook series, my podcasts, all that stuff is there. Awesome. Thank you, Amanda, for being a guest. Oh, sister, you have a testimony to share, and I want you to continue to go out and and share this message, help to uh, bring awareness around this subject and let people know that healing is possible because of the type of God that we serve. All things are possible. So I thank you. Amen. Thank you. Yes. And I thank you all for tuning into today's broadcast. Oh, she got me fired up. I'm ready to go now after listening to her. And I hope she blessed you. And if you were blessed by this episode, you know what to do. Please leave a five-star review and share this message with a friend. Also, if you're looking for a Christian counselor, please be sure to visit our website at faithonthejourney.org. Again, that is faithonthejourney.org. So that's it for this week, family. Thank you again for tuning in. And until next time, you keep your faith on the journey. I'll see you soon, family.